Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Remember the whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And we spent the first three chapters talking about what those riches are, understanding our position in Christ and all the blessings that God has given to us who are in Christ. And so when we got to chapter 4, we begin now the practical section, okay? In light of what God's done, this is how you should live. And so Paul began the practical section of Ephesians by urging us to imitate Jesus' mindset of long-suffering. And we do that by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace that we have in Christ. Again, this unity we have isn't something we have to work hard to create. It already exists for all who are in Christ. It's just who we are. It's how things are. So the question follows, though, what is this unity that we join, that we become a part of when we repent of our sins and we put our trust in Jesus? Now, the word unity, it means that which everyone agrees on. That's what the word unity here means in chapter 4, verse 3. So, our unity as Christians is based on the common ground of our faith, what we all agree on from the Scriptures. The common ground that we have, it exists from objective, immovable truths that every believer embraces. They are facts that our faith is based on, the essentials of Christianity. And as we, I know we've been making a torrid pace through Ephesians, and so we're going to cover the great, huge section of three verses this morning. The essentials of Christianity, Paul mentions seven essentials here. So chapter 4, verse 4, he says, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So we start here, the first basis for our unity as Christians is that there is one body, one church is what that means. The word body here is primarily used in Scripture to refer to our physical bodies, our flesh and bones. But the word is also used symbolically or metaphorically around 25 other times in the New Testament to refer to the church. We already saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. In Ephesians 1, 22, Paul says, referring to what the Father has done for Jesus, he has put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So we see that it is used to refer to the church. Now, Christians all over the world, they might meet in unique locations and under different names, but there is one church. Paul had this in his mind when he closed out his teaching section of Ephesians with praise. In Ephesians 3.21, he says, unto him be glory in the church, singular. Now, Paul in other places in the New Testament, he'll mention the church is. So it's not like he's ignoring that there's other churches that meet in different places. But the idea is, is that even though that's true, there is only one church of Jesus Christ where every believer is a member. We read about that in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. 
For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So we, we have the metaphor explained here. We're not just making it up. As my body has many parts to it. There's a part that's speaking right now. Hopefully there's a part that's thinking when I speak. I have hands that are moving. If you tied my hands behind my back, I probably wouldn't be able to speak very well. There's lots of different things that are in motion right now, things that I do control and things that I have no clue. They're just involuntary. When I go home from here, the parts don't all of a sudden separate and go their separate ways. Many parts, but it's one body. So is Christ. So is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, the church. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be slaves or free, and we have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many, many parts, but there's one body. Many people, many different ministries, but there's one church, one church. Now, why is this an essential? Because no matter how much we might disobey Paul's command to be eager to maintain our unity, we are still unified. We are still unified. And that means I can never look at another believer and say, they're not exactly like me, so they're not in the body. Or I'm more important than them. Or I don't need them. We can never do that. Nor can I look at another believer and say, well, they're not exactly like me, so I guess I'm not in the body. Or I'm not as important. Or I'm not needed like they are just because we look different or we have different roles. Now, the question comes up, well, if there's only one church, then why are there so many churches? Well, Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, now there are diversities of gifts, all sorts of different gifts, but it's the same Spirit who gives them. We don't all have the same gifts. We're not all called to do what I'm doing. We're not all called to do what you're doing. All of us have different giftings. For example, if you were to run through many of the gifts that God gives to His people, you would see many of the ones that I don't have. There's a reason we have an administrative pastor here. I'm not good at that stuff. I don't have that particular gifting. I'm not, if, if things are left for me to organize, they're probably not going to be organized very well. I had nothing to do with this beach baptism planning. Literally. I didn't. And and there's a reason for that, because it's better when someone with a gift who can administrate these things does it. I think I have the gift of teaching. I hope so. You guys keep coming back. You may not have the gift of teaching. There's nothing wrong with that. There are differences of gifts, but it's the same Spirit who gives all of them. And then he goes on to say, there are also differences of administrations, but it's the same Lord. There's different ways that those gifts can be used in the ministry, Maybe my gift of teaching is one that does it in a large group format, but maybe you have a gift to teach that's in a one-on-one discipleship situation. And then he goes on to say, there's also, he says, there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. In other words, someone might have the same type of gift of teaching I do, but maybe it might be in a different ministry. There's nothing wrong with that. I realize that folks will come in here and they will sit down and I will teach and they will go, that is not my pastor. 
I don't hear the Lord, that this is not the place for me to be taught. And eventually, they'll find the place where God sends them. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I know that I'm not able to reach every single person in this massive city that is called Orlando with all of its suburbs. I know I'm not the right person to reach all those people. There are many other gifted men out there who are doing this type of teaching job, different wonderful ministries. We need them, just like we're needed. Now, the reason you're here, I hope, is because you come in and you go, well, I do hear God's voice. Some people come in and they say, that guy's annoying. I need to get out of here. And you guys either tolerate me or you don't think I'm annoying. You sense that God is teaching you, that the gifts of the Spirit are ministering to you. So, we don't have to meet in the same building or do everything exactly the same to be unified. That's the world's definition of unity, but not the biblical definition of unity. Our unity is found in all these things that we agree on, the first of which is that no matter how spread out we might be, there's still only one church, still only one church that we're all a part of if we're in Christ. Now, the second basis for our unity, he says, there is one spirit. There's one body and one spirit. The word there for one, it speaks of uniqueness, onlyness. There is only one person who is the Holy Spirit, and it's not you. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead. He is unique and distinct from us who are His creation. And who the Holy Spirit is and what He is like is now the second part of this immovable ground of truth that we all agree on. Now, it took me six or seven weeks teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit about eight years ago to cover everything. So we can't cover all of that this morning. But I do need to say that one does need to believe the essentials about the Holy Spirit to be a part of the church, to be a Christian. Now, that starts with the fact that He's God, His deity. We as Christians do not believe that many gods exist, with ours just being the Christian one, you know? It's not like, well, there's this group has their God and this is our God. No. We believe in one triune God of which the Holy Spirit is a member. The Bible teaches us that He has all the attributes of God. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He is omniscient. These are all attributes that only exist in the Godhead. We saw, if you read Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, where Ananias and Sapphira, they come to the church because there was, there was lots of needs going on at that time. And so they decided that they were going to sell their property and they were going to give whatever they made off of that to the church. That's just how they were doing things back then. Didn't go real well. The church of Jerusalem was very poor because if everyone sells everything and no one's working, then you don't have any income and eventually that runs out. So it wasn't the best idea, but it's what they were doing, and they did it out of love for one another to help each other out. They were kind of a communal environment. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they came and they said, hey, we sold the property for this much, and we're giving it all to Jesus, when in fact they held some of it back. Now, Jesus never said they had to sell their property and give it all to him. The point wasn't that they kept some back. The point was, as they were telling everyone else, we gave everything trying to appear more spiritual than they were, wanting others to think they were more spiritual than they actually were. And so when Ananias came up and he said, we sold this property and here I am to present it to the Lord, Peter said, what, what has gotten into your heart that you have lied unto the Holy Spirit about this? 
and God struck him dead. Kind of makes offering time a little bit more holy, doesn't it? Well, his wife came in, Sapphira afterwards, after they wrapped him up and took him out. They buried people very quickly back then. And as she comes in, Peter has to be said, did you sell the property for this much and you gave it all to the Lord? Oh, yeah, that, yeah. And so Peter said to her, why is it that you and your husband have conspired in your heart against the Lord to lie unto God? At first he said the Holy Spirit, then he says God. So the Holy Spirit very clearly is God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force or a power. The Bible teaches he has intelligence, that he has a will, that he loves, that he speaks, that he cries out, and that he teaches us. Now, you don't have to pass a Holy Spirit test before you get saved. That's not what I'm saying here. A person could struggle with understanding the triune nature of God. I still do. I can't wrap my whole head around it. I know the Bible teaches it. I teach it and I accept it. But can I wrap my whole mind around it? Of course not. That's a difficult concept. I'm a finite being trying to understand an infinite God. A person can struggle with understanding the full nature of the Trinity or a person can even struggle with knowing the Holy Spirit well and still be a Christian. But one cannot reject the person of the Holy Spirit or the deity of the Holy Spirit because to do so means you're worshiping a different God. Now, the Christians in Ephesus, they learned this truth from Paul in the beginning days of their church. Teeny tiny church, dozen people, it tells us. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul came for his first visit to the church there, in Acts 19.1, it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Paul got there, and he noticed something was missing in their lives. That's a whole different study, but he asked them, he goes, hey, have you guys received the Holy Spirit since you gotten saved? And they're like, we didn't even know about this Holy Spirit. And so he taught them, and so they said, awesome, we, be- we believe that. That's the idea that I'm trying to convey here. It's not that you, everything's perfect, you've got to pass a test. That's not the point. But is it, if the Bible teaches it, then that settles it for you. That if the Bible says this about the Holy Spirit, that He's a person, that He's God, and I can experience His work in my life, all right, I'm on board. That's the idea. Now, why is this important? Well, the Bible tells us that one of the most basic definitions of a Christian is someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he doesn't belong to Jesus. That's pretty clear, don't you think? If you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're not born again. The Bible says the moment we're saved, we learned this in Ephesians chapter 1, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He is our down payment of heaven. He is that sliver of just understanding what it's going to be like when we get our new body someday that we can walk in the Spirit so we don't have to fulfill the desires of our flesh. That's a part of being a Christian. It's a basic part. Now, why is that an essential? Well, it's important. It's a basis for our unity because when I look at a brother or sister in Christ, I can know I'm unified with them because the same Holy Spirit that lives inside them lives in me. That the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in them. I can know that if they're in Christ. The same Holy Spirit that's been changing my life is the same Holy Spirit that's changing their life. 
They didn't get an inferior version of the Holy Spirit than me. I can't look out there and go, well, I've got more of the Spirit than you do, or I've got a, a better part of the Spirit than you do. I've got a, I've, uh, I'm sure I behave myself. I've got an anointing that's unique to you. That's an unbiblical idea. Now, you say, well, don't we all have a unique anointing from God? Yes, that's the, where it's biblical. The unbiblical idea is, well, I'm special and you're not. I hasn't happened in a long time. I think maybe I've chased off all of the ones that exist in Orlando. But especially when I was pastoring a smaller church in the beginning days, we would get people coming through our church all the time, and they would walk up to me with a big smile on their face. Hi, my name's so-and-so, and I'm a prophet. I'd say, okay. I said, and God's given me a word for you. And I said, I would, I would start doing this. Let me guess. I said, God's got a special anointing upon my life, and he sent you here to tell me that my ministry is just going to explode, and we're going to reach every person in the world, right? You're not special. <laughs> You're a dime a dozen. There's tons of people out there of big heads like you who think they're unique. What makes us special is that God loves us despite who I am, that he made me with all my unique personality differences than you, those things make me unique and special. I don't have to stand out with some special glowing anointing to be special. I am because I'm in Christ, because I'm his creation. And that makes me special. Now, God has a unique call upon all of our lives, but none of them are more special than anybody else's. I'm just as necessary as you are. You're just as necessary as I am. And so I need to recognize that, hey, just like God's working in me, God's working in them. Just like the Holy Spirit's changing me, the Holy Spirit's changing them. And so I can never think that I don't need to be lowly or meek or patient toward them because I'm somehow better than them. Anything that's good in me is because of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me the same Holy Spirit that's working in them too. Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 7, he says, I have come to a conclusion that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. He says, to will is present. I want to do what God wants me to do, but the actual ability, the resources, I don't find any inside of me. Now, in contrast, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? When the Holy Spirit's living through me, if I walk in the Spirit, I won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Amen? That's available to all of us in whatever unique gifting God's given us in the body of Christ. So, there's one body, one church. There's one Holy Spirit working in all of us. Thirdly, it says, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. The third basis for our unity is that we all have the same hope. We're all on the same team. The phrase even as here means that this third essential is intricately tied to the first two essentials because all three of them are stressing the spiritual unity of the church. We have one hope of, even as you are called, the word there called means to urgently invite someone to accept the responsibilities for a specific task. All of us have been urgently invited by God to accept the responsibilities he's given to us in his family the task he's assigned to us in his family. So even as we were all called with one hope of that calling. 
So the unity is based upon this hope that we all have a calling from God. We saw this phrase, hope of our calling, when Paul shared his prayer to the Ephesians in in verse 18 of chapter 1, that you would know what is the hope of his calling. Paul requested from God that he would reveal to every believer in Ephesus that they were not dropped into the family of God with no hope of finding a place in the family of God. He requested that God would show them that each of them would know and understand that the Father had invited them to accept a responsibility of their part in His family. The basis of our unity is not that we're all called to do the same thing. It's that all of us have a task that God's invited us to do. All of us have that hope. None of you have to sit here and go, well, God didn't have anything for me to do. Yes, He does. Just as the next person to you has that same hope, you are important, you're necessary. And that means that you and I can never think it's okay to discard someone or look down on someone because God didn't call them to my task. I love Walk for Life. I love that ministry at Choices. It's a powerful, powerful ministry that's literally changing lives every single day. But if someone ever comes to you and says, hey, are you going to walk for life? And you say, well, well, no, I'm investing my time over here. This is what God's called me to do. Don't ever any of you say to them, well, you, you don't really love God. You're not really doing, you're not serving God. And don't let anybody ever tell you that. Lovingly rebuke them and say, that's not biblical. Because it's not biblical. We all can't do the same thing. We're all not called to do the same thing. Paul actually brings it up. He goes, if everyone was an eye, where, probably not using the right body parts, but let's just go with me. If everyone's an eye, where is the smelling? If everyone's a mouth, where would be the hearing? So all of us are not called to do that. You say, well, yeah, but all of us are called to do certain things. No. When it comes concerns ministry and serving in the church, we're all not called to do anything unless you're going to get to the bare bones of provoking one another to love and good works and the things we're all called to do. When it calls to specific activities within the church or within the world, we're all not called to do the same thing. And so I can't say to someone, and we're all not necessarily all called to do it the same way. I don't sit down with a pastor of first whatever of whatever and say, hey, do you guys, do you guys teach verse by verse with the Bible? Because if you don't, I can't sit down with you. Like we're not, we don't have unity. Like, you're not my brother, if, if that's the case. You're, you may be a pastor, but you're not called by God. I don't say that. Now, if they inquire and say, hey, I hear you do this weird verse-by-verse verse thing. I say, yeah, it's kind of weird. We do what Jesus did, you know. And <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. <clears throat> One Holy Spirit, still working on me. Still working on me. Still working on me. I get a little bitter at times because when I first got here to the Central Florida area, I was a 22-year-old young man planting a church. I desperately needed accountability, needed fellowship. And every pastor I met with wanted to argue about me why we taught verse by verse. So confession time. I'm still being sanctified in this. Still a little grumpy about that. So. But I don't do that. I'm like, okay, well, hey, you're, you're reaching people we're not reaching. Praise the Lord. If they're in Christ... We're unified on the essentials. Praise the Lord. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough for me to say, God bless you. It's enough for me to say, hey, can I pray for you? 
and it should be for you too. If we're all in Christ, then we're all part of the same church. And we all have the same spirit living inside of us, and that same spirit has given all of us an expectation that we have a role in God's family. We all have that hope. Now, the fourth basis for our unity, we find it in verse 5. It says, one Lord. The fourth basis for our unity is the person and position of Jesus Christ. The word Lord there means master and ruler. That is Jesus' title. He is the one who is in charge of everything. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says very clearly, Wherefore God has also highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a clear statement from Scripture. He is Lord. And if you, you say, well, well, I don't know if that applies to me. Do you exist in the sky? Do you exist in the earth? Or are you already six feet under? Either way, He's your Lord. He's the boss. He's the master. There is only one Jesus, and He's the one who is in charge of everything. And that Jesus who is in charge of everything is the Jesus of the Bible. I bring this up because there is a person out there who you should not be listening to. If you are, you should stop. But a few weeks ago, and I am going to name his name, a few weeks ago, Andy Stanley tweeted, the Christian faith does not rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. To which a wise person tweeted back, we wouldn't even know the identity of that individual if the 66 ancient documents didn't accurately describe him as Jesus of Nazareth. I do not get to make up for myself who Jesus is or what Jesus is like. You know, I follow Jesus. It looks like you follow you know, a pink hippopotamus. Clarify for me, please. Well, I do follow a pink hippopotamus. Well, that's not Jesus. You don't get to just make up who Jesus is for yourself or what he's like. The Bible explains who he is. He is Lord. And being a Christian means that my faith is in the one who is in charge of me and who's in charge of everything else. The one who is also compassionate, meek, and lowly in heart. The Jesus described by the Bible. Now, if I'm not following the Jesus of the Bible, then I'm worshiping a different God. A God that's been created out of my own mind or the mind of some other false teacher that doesn't exist. It's not Jesus. Now, again, just like the Holy Spirit, our goal this morning isn't to give a lecture on Christology, the study of Jesus, who He is. But there are some essentials we need to just mention. A Christian believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. A Christian believes that Jesus became a man but never ceased to be God, that He is both fully God and fully man forevermore. A Christian believes that Jesus is the Messiah and the one who died for our sins. A Christian believes that Jesus is our Savior, that He's the only way to the Father. That's what a Christian believes. And again, does that mean that you have to fully grasp all those ideas? No one's going to give you a Christology test to get saved. That's not my point. But my point is, is that just like in the Scripture, when they would say, well, we're not sure about what Jesus is here, and, and then the Bible would tell us that someone would say, well, He's this. And then you go, oh, okay, the Bible says that, then we're good. That's what a Christian is. 
Doesn't mean you got it all figured out in your mind. It means, well, the Bible says it, that's enough for me. That's where my definition of Jesus comes from. It comes from the scriptures. Now, why is it important that this concept of one Lord, one boss, is a basis of our unity? Well, it means we all have the same boss, Jesus. I'm not the boss, and neither are you, praise God. And therefore, I don't get to treat my brothers and sisters however I want. I'm to be eager to preserve my unity with them because they work for Jesus. They don't work for me. I can be lowly and meek and patient with them because I don't work for them. I work for Jesus who has never, ever done me wrong. Never. Now, this essential is going to become very important when we get to chapter 5 and we start discussing the proper way to approach marriage life, family life, and work life because we're going to talk about some heavy things. And so when we get to the idea of you say, well, Pastor Will, you're talking about all these things about what I'm supposed to do as a wife, but my my husband, he's not leading spiritually. He's not walking with Jesus. He's not being obedient to the Scriptures sometimes. He's not giving 100%. Do I still have to give 100%? Yes, because you do it for your boss. You don't do it for them. You do it for Jesus who has never failed you and always has given you everything. You say, well, I've got this work situation where I've got these employees and, 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 and unless I get on them and I really, you know, mistreat them, they don't do their job. You're telling me that I can't do that? You're telling me I got to do what Jesus says here, what Paul teaches me about how to be an employer, even when they're not doing their job? Yes, because you don't work for them. You work for Jesus. He's your Lord. You live to please Him. You say, well, Pastor, well, my parents, the Bible tells me, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, but my parents, they don't do the right thing sometimes. And how can I honor them when they're not doing the right thing sometimes? And I don't agree with them. And I, I think I should just, I should follow my own heart. I should do what I need to do. First off, you don't follow your heart. Your heart follows you. Secondly, yes, because your parents aren't your real boss. Jesus is your real boss. And he's always been good to you. And so if you're living with them, you need to honor whatever their rules are. You need to honor whatever boundaries they set. So I think those boundaries are stupid. You're free to think that. But you're not free to dishonor it. Because you do it for Jesus, your Lord. The fifth basis for our unity is says that there is one faith, one faith. The fifth basis for unity is our method of salvation. The word faith here, it just means what is believed. There is one thing that we all believed. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 explained what we believe about salvation from start to finish. We were children of wrath because we chose to be children of disobedience. But God in His great love intervened, sending Jesus to fully atone for all mankind's sins. And through faith in Christ's work on the cross, we are saved. Not of works, but faith in Christ alone. Jude 3, verse 3, calls that our common salvation. Something everybody here shares. If you're saved today, if you're born again, then you share that with everybody else here who's born again. Nobody got saved differently, all right? You know, nobody got saved because they got baptized. Nobody here got saved because they did enough good works. Every one of us got saved, even though our personal experience, where we got saved, or maybe the words we said might have been a little bit different. That might be different, but how we got saved was the same, by faith in Christ 
and what he did on the cross alone by turning from our sins, repenting, and putting our trust in Jesus. I was not saved any differently than anyone else who is in Christ. Salvation happens the same way for all of us. Now, why is this important to maintaining our unity? Well, no Christian could say they don't have to be lowly or meek or patient because, well, I got saved differently than you did. I mean, I was a little bit better than you. I mean, I, Jesus helped me out, but I did, I did most of the work. So I'm on a, like a different level than you. Like, like I, got, I only needed like to be 19% saved, but you were like 54%. So I don't have to be meek and lowly with you because I didn't experience as much salvation as you did. Listen, all of us were in the same bad spot. All of us were loved by the Father. Jesus died for all of us, and all of us received the gift of salvation by faith alone. And therefore, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Jesus we could never repay. And that means we all can be eager to maintain our unity by being patient with each other, even as Jesus has been so patient with us. Essential number six, there is one baptism. I got to get moving. The sixth basis for our unity is, there, is our baptism into the church. Now, baptism is confusing here. It probably should not be translated baptism. It should be translated there is one immersion. I bring that up because we're going to be doing a water baptism today, and this is not what that's talking about. That's not what it's talking about. If you've been taught that, I'm going to explain why that's wrong. It is natural to assume that this refers to water baptism, but that's not the only way this word, baptizo, is used in Scripture. It just means to immerse. The most common use for this word is water baptism, but it is also used of three other kinds of baptisms in Scripture. For example, Jesus spoke of the baptism of his death. When he's talking to the disciples, he said, are you able to be baptized with the same baptism I'm about to be baptized with? Are you able to drink of the cup I'm going to drink? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass, Right? So he used that word, I'm going to be immersed into death for all mankind. That's what that word means. Paul also mentioned our baptism into the body of Christ. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into the body of Christ. Multiple other Bible teachers in the New Testament spoke of being baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. So there are multiple immersions we can experience in Scripture. Now, Every baptism described in Scripture has three components, all right? Jesus was baptized by the Father into death, right? Right? That was his immersion. There's always something, someone who's doing the immersing, someone who's being immersed, and there's something we're being, that person is being emerged, immersed into, okay? Someone does the immersing, someone's being immersed, and then you're, you're being immersed into something, Okay, that's, every baptism is described that way. In one, uh, in water baptism, we'll see it this afternoon, one believer immerses another believer into water, right? We'll do that. We're going to go there, and me and someone else, because the water's a little rough, we're going to go out there, and we're going to, me and Eric are going to do this, we're going to, you know, take the, per- the baptism candidates, we're going to take them out, and we're going to dunk them in the water. So, we're going to be the ones doing the immer- immersing, They'll be immersed, and the something is the water. We read about this type of immersion in Acts 8, verses 36 through 38, and this really just sums up what baptism is. In Acts eight thirty-six, we know the story as Philip was called by God to go to Gaza, and then God told him to pull up next to the chariot, and as he pulls up next to the chariot, he hears this guy reading the scriptures, and he says, hey, you understand what you're reading? 
And he's like, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And he invites him in. And so he's telling him about Jesus. And as this guy is, you know, hearing about Jesus, he says, they come by water. Verse 36, and as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? That's a great question. What do I need to do to get baptized? What keeps me from getting baptized right now? There's water. That's one component, right? And Philip said to him, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. That's water baptism in a nutshell. We're going to go today, and we're going to go down by water. And then we're going to bring the candidates up, and we're going to, I'm going to ask them questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose from the dead and he's coming back for you someday? Yes. And then I'm going to give them an opportunity to share how they've put their faith in him with all their heart. And then we're going to go out and dunk him in the water. That's what the Bible does, says, and that's how we do it. So that's water baptism. We also read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, there is one coming whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So in the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the baptizer, and then he immerses the believer into the Holy Spirit. The third baptism that is mentioned here is our baptism into the body of Christ. This is where the baptizer is the Holy Spirit, and he immerses a new believer into the church. And that happens the moment we get saved, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So the question is, which one's Paul talking about here? What, where is our unity based? Well, to answer that, we need to remember that Paul is explaining how these seven things, they all tie together. They're all base, a basis for our unity. It cannot be water baptism because some of us get water baptized early in our faith and some of us get water baptized later in our faith. It cannot be spirit baptism, the, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, because some of us get baptized with the Holy Spirit early in our faith and some of us get baptized with the Holy Spirit later in our faith. So even though both those baptisms are important, that's why we're doing them today, and why we should, we should obey the Lord, we should do that, neither of those are required for salvation. We can and do exist in the church without everyone experiencing them at the same time. Therefore, that can never be a basis for unity. However, all of us get baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church the same way and at the same time, the moment we believe. When God's Spirit brings our spirit back to life when we get saved, no matter how opposed we were to the church before we got saved, we're immediately a part of God's family the moment we do get saved. That is the only one that can be a basis for unity. The only baptism Paul can have in mind is that one, because that's the only one that can be a basis of unity for every single Christian. Now, why is that important? Because the church is made up of baby believers and longtime saints. But because the Holy Spirit makes all of us, whether you're a baby believer or a longtime saint, a part of God's family. We can never think we don't have to be lowly or meek or patient with someone because we've been part of the family longer than they have. I don't have to look and say, oh, that's a nice idea, whippersnapper. But I've been walking with Jesus for 60 years. You don't get to talk to me. You don't get to provoke me to love and to good works. Yes, they do. Because we're all a part of the body of Christ. We've all been baptized. There's one baptism. You're not like, well, I'm, I'm baptism rank six. 
because I've been saved for 60 years. I'm in the sixth circle. See, there's my snark coming out again. I'm, I'm working on it. Not successfully, apparently. If you are a believer who's an hour old or a believer who's 90 years old, we can speak into each other's lives. We're all a part of God's family. Number seven, verse six, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The seventh basis for our unity is God the Father. It starts off by saying one God. There is only one God in Christianity. That God exists in three persons. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, the one mentioned here. God the Son, we already covered Him, the Lord. And God the Holy Spirit. That is the biblical definition of God. And when it says here that He is the Father of all, it means Jehovah is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all men, for He alone is God. And then Paul describes exactly who our God is in three ways. Who is above all. First off, our God is transcendent. He created all things, and yet He exists above and independent from His creation. All things are upheld by His power, and yet He is upheld by Himself alone. In and of Himself, He is outside of humanity's full experience, full perception, and full grasp. He is transcendent. He is nothing like we could ever imagine or create ourselves. But He's also through all, which means our God is pervasive, While God is indeed outside of humanity's full experience, perception, and grasp, God has made Himself known to man through general revelation. You can't go anywhere and not know that there's a God out there. There are two truths that creation tells us. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says, the invisible things of God are known by two things that are visible to all. One is that He is, that He exists. You cannot look out here and go, I don't think there's a God. You have to put your brain in check to say that. Because everything out there has the mark of a designer, has the mark of a creator. No one would look at my watch or my bracelet and say, wow, Pastor O, that's pretty cool how randomly a bracelet that has, you know, steps of faith carved on it just happened to make its way onto your wrist. No, no. We would all recognize who made this. Where did you have it made? Why do you wear it? There's design, there's intent, there's purpose. It's with that when you go out and you look at the leaves, the sky, the clouds, the stars. There's design everywhere. Everything works in order. And not only we can know that he exists, but the Bible says from his creation, we can also know that he's all powerful because I can't do that. We might be able to create things like this, but I can't, I can't just create it from nothing. And so when you look out at creation, you can know that He is and that He's all-powerful. It's supposed to kind of get your heart and go, maybe I should figure out what this all-powerful God who made me wants of me. That's where it starts. He's pervasive. He's through all. And then thirdly, He is imminent. He is in you all. The idea here is it, He's in believers, He's not in an unbeliever, but he's imminent in us. You see, God didn't just make himself known generally, but when we come to Christ, he makes himself known specifically through specific revelation through his word. He lives inside of us, and he helps us to understand his word. He guides us into all truth. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because it means we all have the same maker. 
We all have the same judge who is also our father. We all have the same dad. No Christian could say, well, my dad's better than yours, so I don't need to be meek or lowly or patient with you. I've got a different father than you do. No. God Almighty is the father of everyone who is in Christ. And all of us will bow before him in awe when we are side by side in heaven. It's not like there'll be one person who's on their face and then you're just kind of sitting there and go, I don't need to bow that much. I'm a little bit higher than you are. No, we will all bow before our heavenly father equally. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so we should start doing so, bowing now by being eager to maintain our unity with one another. Amen? All right, I'm out of time. So I'm going to have the worship team come up. But I do want to give one final note about this word that you've probably heard out there. It's called uh, cult or cults. What is a cult? Well, a, a Christian cult is a group that calls themselves followers of Jesus but they are not really part of Jesus' church. Every cult messes with one or more of these essentials. Every cult messes with one or more of these essentials. They'll, they'll say their church is the only church, for example. We, we do not say that at Calvary Chapel Orlando. You did not hear that this morning. You heard that there's one church, and we're a part of that, right? There's lots of other great churches out there. We're just one that's a part of that one church. Well, they mess with that. They say, well, there's only one true church. Or they deny the person or the deity of the Holy Spirit or the person or the deity of Jesus. They come up with a different method for salvation. Or they teach that our sins aren't washed away until we're baptized. They call Jesus a lesser God or they deny the triune nature of God. They add or subtract or alter the Word of God. And so they're called a cult because we do not have unity with any group that denies one of these essentials. Because when you deny one of these essentials, you are worshiping a different God. One that's been created out of your own mind, one that doesn't exist. They trust in a salvation message that doesn't save anyone. So we can't have unity with them. And so my encouragement to you is if you encounter a group of people who say they are Christians, but something seems off, check out what they believe about these seven essentials. If they're solid, then we have unity, no matter how weird they are. Don't be weird. But no matter how weird they are, well, they do this thing when they they sing. Oh, that's okay. They don't sing with instruments. Okay, well, that's fine. You don't have to sing with instruments to have unity with somebody, right? Well, man, you know, they go, I I went to that church and it was just loud. The music was just, I couldn't even hear, I couldn't even hear God. And it's like, well, that's okay. Maybe that's that's a little weird, but that's okay. If they're here and the essentials were unified here, we have unity. We can lock arms together. But if they don't have these essentials, then we don't have unity, and we cannot lock arms with them. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a meek, lowly, or or patient attitude toward them, because the Bible has other things to say about how we interact with unbelievers. They need the real Jesus, so we need to shine the real Jesus, and Jesus was meek and lowly and patient. But we don't lock arms with them because we don't have unity with them. So there are clear bases for what it means to be a Christian. And when those conditions are met, then we have unity. Even if that person sitting next to you, you think that might be a little weird. 
that doesn't matter. Because the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all a little weird. Just try not to be too weird. Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace that saves us. Lord, we recognize that we're all on the same path, even if we're on different parts of the path or we've been on it for a different amount of time. We're all on that narrow road that leads to you. And so, Jesus, help us to love one another, to recognize that if we have these things, and Lord, my guess is if people are staying here, that since we teach these seven things consistently every Sunday, and you know, at least one of them every Sunday, if folks are here, it's because they believe that. So Lord, help us to recognize the people sitting across from us, next to us, front of us, behind us. There are brothers and there are sisters. Let us be those who strive, who are eager to maintain that unity we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.